care for all Rose can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us How are you, Julia Claire? How are you, Kate Willett? Today we have a a really good episode for you. Uh, I talked to Caitlin Bailey, uh, who has a podcast called Old Pro, and we had a conversation about sex work and specifically the history of sex work, which I think listeners will enjoy. But uh, first up, what what have you been uh, mulling over this week? (laughs) Oh, God. There's been a lot. Well, you know, um, we are recording this on um, Tuesday early afternoon, and Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed last night as the next Supreme Court justice to take away our rights. Um, So that's, you know, I think it's like a sullen mood, certainly online. The, the timeline is pretty bleak right now. I, yeah, I actually deactivated my Twitter account for a little while because... Wow. Yeah, that's I just... really smart. Like, once Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed, I'm just like, yeah, there's, there's like, nothing here for me for a little while. I'll, no. come, I'll come back after the election, uh, especially if Trump is out. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I'm just... Uh, it definitely is a bummer. And also, the discourse about it is kind of a bummer. You know, it's like... Uh, I don't know. People are doing this thing where it's like, you know, she's not qualified or she is qualified. And I'm just like, uh, can we please, you know, like, it's not even about that. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah that's totally missing the point. She's kind of evil, you know? Yeah, she yeah. I mean, whether she's qualified or not, her beliefs and her positions that affect the way that she rules in a courtroom are fucking bonkers and super regressive and also like again whether or not she's qualified is really neither here nor there because we shouldn't be here in the first place like mitch mcconnell needs to be just sent to antarctica i really i like it's the whole it's the whole structure we shouldn't be you know, Amy Coney Barrett is a symptom. She's not the problem. Did you see Mitch McConnell's hand? That shit? It was, like, black and yeah. it's, like, decaying. Which I- Yeah, also his lip is like that, too. He's dying from the inside out. It's, like, it's, like, kind of like a Dorian Gray situation, except in, in like, he's the decaying one in the attic. But I, I shudder to think of who the hot Mitch McConnell is walking around. Um... Is that Paul Ryan? Paul Ryan's not hot, but, you know. People used to say that he was. Do you remember that? (laughs) I I do remember. And you know what I'm most embarrassed about? I I, I did this little, I did a bit once for like a couple months about how I would hate fuck Paul Ryan. And, (laughs) you know, it really was just a bit. I would not have done it. But now looking back, I'm like, that was such a disgusting joke. I never, I would never hate fuck Paul Ryan. Remember when he did that thing where he was, talking about uh like how kids didn't actually want uh free school lunches because you know they they would rather be like hungry and know that they uh someone 
you know, than than have to take something for free or whatever, you know? Yep. You know, I love how much of Republican ideology just culminates in um, kids actually want to be hungry. (laughs) Yeah. Like, we need to... I just, I can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely really disgusting. Um, Very, yeah, Paul Ryan was like a big Ayn Rand stan, which like, have you ever read The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged? No, I have not. I, you know, of course, I'm very familiar with, uh, with Ayn's prolific work, but I, no, I, I've, I've never taken taking the red pill of reading it. I, re- I read both of those books when I was 18 years old, which is like about uh, the right time to to read them. But here's the thing, like Ayn Rand, what I really noticed uh, is that uh, this is, you know, it was definitely a horrible ideology, but it's clearly also some kind of like sex thing for her. Okay, so this is this is what I wasn't she like basically a fem cell like uh well I don't know if she was a fem cell or not. She had like a really long affair with this guy named Nathaniel Brandon who was like I think 20 years younger than her, but like all the sex in like Atlas Shrugs and um then uh also the fountainhead it's like there's this guy who is very fucking strong and tough and he doesn't care about anyone and he's just such an individual and then you know there's like a a woman who is also kind of like that and then they have kind of i don't it's somewhere between rape and sex like he rapes her but she wants it and it's just it's really really fucked up it's like uh i'm not you look you know people are free to to play out their ravishment fantasies. <laughs> I'm not trying to sex shame anyone on the podcast, but it's just like... Right, as we said before, that's my job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, it's like a fucking... I don't know, man. I think just the, the fantasy... Let's just start with the basics. The fantasy of being a libertarian who gets laid is so... Uh, that is a fantasy. It's unrealistic. Is- <laughs> I, I was thinking this week about libertarians because I went to New Hampshire over the weekend and there's a lot of like um, kind of gun there, gun libertarians there. And there I sure are. Yeah. And we'll get into this in a minute more deeply. But, you know, I'm from California where there's a lot of tech libertarians. And uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I crossed paths with some libertarians who ran this thing called the Seasteading Institute. And the Seasteading Institute uh, is a group of people who want to homestead the open seas uh, because there's international waters and you can live in a libertarian paradise. There are no rules. Everyone's just on a boat. And this institute is, I don't even know if it's still around, but I think so. Uh, It was, you got a bunch of funding from like, um, from Google, from Eric Schmidt and, uh, they they wanted to have this event called uh, ephemerile, and ephemerile is was this thing that was a uh, you know like their kind of practice for homesteading the open seas, you know. But it was <laughs> it's the funniest phrase. Yeah, ever. yeah, yeah. Homesteading the open seas. Uh, seasteading, I guess you know. And so th- th- these the thing is, is, this was not a rugged group of people. It was mostly of course not mostly software engineers, and uh, so they hired one of my friends. 
Chicken John, who is like a Burning Man guy, or at least was a Burning Man guy. He's, you know, knows how to do all the carpentry stuff to build these platforms in the water so that uh, there could be, you know, like a, a little party on the water. People could walk around and stuff. And so I went out on the crew for the, the building. So it was like maybe, you know, 15 to 20 people who were like builders and artists and then maybe a hundred libertarian people. So uh, mostly it was, uh, you know, these uh, people that uh, were uh, homesteading, uh, wanted to homestead the open seas, but, you know, it was also me and uh, some builder friends and we just like, interacted with them all weekends and i just remember this one guy who told me like this like peak libertarian fantasy he was like this loser tech nerd and he was saying um you know that uh when everyone is out in the open seas and they have all this like freedom uh you know all the work will mostly be done by robots so no one will really have to do anything and uh he will get laid all the time because right. the because chicks have, have so much time. Well, no, but the chicks will be super horny from all the freedom, you from know, all the freedom. Yeah. And then there'll be uh, <laughs> immortality pills as mm -hmm. well. And uh, that will make the chicks extra horny because they will be. Uh, yeah, just f so fucking horny from all the immortality and freedom. And I was like, this is such a like the universe in which you get laid a lot is is definitely as as complicated as this. You're not wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a long tangent, but that's what I always think of when I think of libertarians and sex. Just the chicks are going to get so horny from all the freedom. Um yeah. Oh my god. Wow, that yeah, that is a very a complex web. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's a uh, these fucking nerds the gun libertarians are maybe more scary you know but these tech libertarians are definitely well i think i think they're they're two different kinds of scary because the tech libertarians have so much money and they can make their rube goldberg machine of sex like a reality i think if they want to <laughs> uh rube goldberg machine of sex what a disgusting turn of phrase yeah so um I know we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, about tech shit this week because uh, there was a an interview you saw with a friend of the show, uh, Zephyr Teachout. Zephyr Teachout, one of the coolest names in politics, too. Um, yeah, so basically, speaking of Google, um, there is a lawsuit being brought against them by the Department of Justice in 11 different states. Um, and it's an antitrust case. It's just, you know, um, accusing Google of, um, engaging in anti-competitive practices. And this is the, it's a, it's a big one. It's the kind of the first lawsuit of this magnitude in 20 years, the last one uh, being was Microsoft in the, the late 90s, early two th 2000s. And <clears throat> um, yeah, so there's a really good um, interview with Zephyr Teachout on, on Democracy Now! that we can link in the show notes. Um, and basically, the accusation is that Google, quote, owns or controls search distribution through channels accounting for roughly 80% 
of the general search queries in the United States. Yeah, um, including like they pay like Apple a ton yeah. of money, right, to uh, have Google search be the way that <clears throat> anyone accesses anything on an iPhone. So this yeah. is actually what so Zephyr was was talking about that, and she said that it's kind of like mafia rule because Apple and Google theoretically compete against each other, but they also profit off of each other and they co- combine forces to like crush other competition. Um, and you know, this is like nothing that anyone with a with sentience doesn't already know that like of course companies like Google and App- Apple. Um, engage in anti-competitive practices and of course they're monopolies at this point almost Um, but there was an investigation uh, of Google back during the Obama years um, because of a very similar like almost this is exact same issue but the Obama administration chose not to move forward with antitrust Enforcement, And I think that that is something that we see coming up over and over again, that these we do have antitrust laws on the books. Our government has just chosen not to enforce them. Um, And in the Microsoft uh, lawsuit from the United States versus Microsoft back in the, the late 90s, that was it was decided in 2001 and the judge ruled uh, the federal judge ruled that. Microsoft had to be broken up, but then Microsoft appealed and the DC circuit court of appeals overturned that judge's ruling and basically let Microsoft kind of like self-regulate, which we know is not real, (laughs) never works. They, these companies do not self-regulate. Well, to be fair, I don't self-regulate very That's well true. either. I but, don't either. Yeah. You, yeah. Can't, you can't expect them to do it. We don't do it well either. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and basically that kind of, that ruling being overturned kind of opened the floodgates for a lot of more anti-competitive practices to just become kind of like industry standard in tech. Um. And Google argues that, like, oh, we're not engaging in anti-competitive practices and we're not kind of stacking the deck in our favor. People are just choosing us. And that's really exactly what, like, every monopoly, <laughs> the owner of every monopoly has ever said. I'm sure, like, Standard Oil said the same thing. And, you know, the railroads, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying anymore. Basically, yeah. but, you know, Google... At the end of the day, it's not just a search engine. It's like an ad company. It's they make their money off of selling ads. Yeah, it, it's um, I don't know. I like I think I, I'm still kind of trying to sort through, you know, what I think about monopolies. I think I'm in favor of public monopolies, for example, uh, no charter schools. Like, I think that, you know, uh, the government should have, that it would be a lot better if the government had a monopoly on education and healthcare. And, uh, you know, I think, like, what I would want to see happen is, you know, Amazon, Google, I'd want to see these things nationalized um, instead of, uh, just broken up, you know, like I think, uh, like to me, like, yes, I guess it would be better if, you know, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp were separate companies again, but you know, there's still going to be huge, huge, huge companies that have outsized power. And I think, um, 
Zephyr Teachout is really good at making the case about how uh, monopolies, like even if you're someone who, you know, is not like you're not like an Elizabeth Warren type person, you're not even like your your goal is not fair capitalism. Let's say you want to get get rid of capitalism altogether. Like it's it's still breaking up some of these monopolies uh may be a necessary step to that because yeah they just have so much fucking power you know exactly that's exactly what she said and she actually just wrote a book called break em up uh that was um released about this exactly and she said uh you know exactly to your point kate that even if you know even if that doesn't sound even if just breaking them up doesn't sound like a satisfactory end goal to you like breaking them up might still be a necessary step in them eventually becoming a public utility um so i think i don't know uh, i mean t- to be to be clear and i think you know a lot of antitrust legislation is is over my head um and a lot of like the specifics but it's you know you you don't need a law degree to know that like that these companies are engaging in high, in anti-competitive practices and that their expressed goal is to kind of subsume the entire market. And I think... Yeah, yeah. well, not even that. Their expressed goal is to, like, have... to. I mean, like, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are trying to fucking move everyone to space so that they can be the ruler of space. Like, them sort of having extreme influence in government uh, as as they both do. I mean, Jeff Bezos, like, moved his living situation to Washington, D.C. so he can just kind of be uh, a full-time uh, lobbyist, lobbyist for, for himself. For yeah. himself, yeah. And, I mean, he is, right? Like, I mean, like... I mean, the Trump administration uh, has had its little beefs with uh, Jeff Bezos, but, you know, for the most part, it's still completely unchecked power. And the Obama administration was like, I mean, just hand in hand with with Amazon. And there, you know, in both parties, uh, there is like the resistance to pretty much doing anything to check their power at all and like for republicans it's just kind of a a natural extension of that like any regulation of any corporation is bad but the democratic party has a whole thing with tech companies where like to them like you know tech companies are like the path for for everybody to you know have have utopia will just innovate and everybody Innovation. will learn to code. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of these, uh, tech dudes are, uh, are, are powerful democratic donors. Not everyone. There's some Republicans, but like the, the kind of like aesthetic of corporate power that tech companies have is, uh, is pretty much in line with the, the democratic party where, you know, it's like, okay, well, we'll have, uh, LGBT people and our, workforce and you know it's it's not uh it's not always an extractive industry like oil where like you know those dudes are all republicans and shit but i mean it's just it's tough because there's not really the momentum uh to regulate these folks um from from uh either major party which is you know no surprise but yeah yeah um, i i mean i think uh, 
I think that a lot of people were surprised when Mark Zuckerberg was meeting with Trump privately on like a semi-regular basis. And I'm just like, what is shocking to you about that? That's they are working towards like similar mutually beneficial levels of self-interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, some some Democrats like have thrown out the idea of like, oh, there needs to be like, you know, new agency regulation. Um, but one thing I mean, that's a stupid idea anyway. Not like, I mean, just because it's like it's not it's not going to be enforced just like it's not now. But uh, one of the things that we may see change really soon with the Supreme Court is right now there is this pre- precedence called Chevron deference, which uh, they were part of the original suit that where this precedent was established. But basically, the precedent that exists now is that, uh, you know, Congress makes the laws and that agencies can interpret the laws and their interpretation of the law sort of stands as if it is the law. For example, Congress passes a law that, you know, we have to have, you know, cleaner water and you're not allowed to pollute as much that the EPA will have uh, like the ability to decide what that means because they have scientists working for them and Congress is not even expected to, you know, to know everything about like the how water should be kept clean. You can have these agencies that are uh, with experts that are able to, you know, interpret what the law means and outline how to actually put it into practice and enforce it. And um, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, as well as some other conservative justices, um, not just in the Supreme Court, but like all the way down, they are uh, not in favor of this precedent because it makes it easier to regulate companies to some extent. So Probably in the next like year or two years, we're going to see a world where these agencies are completely defanged with that precedent, um, completely uh, abolished. And, you know, if Congress wants to make a law that says we need cleaner water, they have to outline in the law exactly what that means. So it's just going to be impossible to enforce this stuff with tech with environmental regulations i mean it's it's uh it's very bad you know yeah it's uh it's really and it's this is again one of the myriad examples in which um the law has not caught up to technology uh and technology so far outpaces uh the law and these these statutes uh because one of the points that um, I think Zephyr Teachout brought up was that basically antitrust legislation historically people are only, uh, like Congress is only or the DOJ are only um, kind of susceptible to go after a company for antitrust uh, violations when it's affecting consumer prices when the consumer is paying more than they should be. And I mean, I'm sure that that's true to some extent here, but but as you were saying, it's like some of these are kind of invisible. Like Google being the default search engine is not something that makes, you know, has any direct like A to B uh, consequence for how much the average consumer is paying. So I think- Yeah, because it's free. Because Google is free. Because I think, I don't know, there's like- uh, I don't remember who said it originally, but the kind of like uh, 
the the like tech slogan is you know if you're not paying for it you're not the consumer you are the product which is like yeah. how these a lot, a lot of these companies are built facebook you know all the social media companies uh freaking google you know they're they're like <laughs> they're getting all your data and yeah, yeah i mean they're that's, selling that's the that, yeah google is not just a search engine like mines and sells your data and um basically yeah it's like google is a search engine but it's at this point it's basically like public infrastructure that was one of the points that she was making but it's uh pop profit seeking and and data mining so you can't I think a lot of the people at Google are just kind of like, or the people kind of involved in this in this lawsuit representing Google are just like, oh, who me? No, I couldn't possibly do that. I'm just a search engine. Like, yeah, but it's, you know, yeah. I mean, not to mention like just the amount of shit that these companies know about us. You know, it's just it's so. It's so creepy, you know, I, like the way that like I can be having like a down week and I'll just start getting ads on Facebook for like, you know, here's how to treat your depression or, you know, like it's yeah. just like they just they have figured out so much about us. that It's not even like A to B. It's not like, you know, it's one thing if you're searching for like dresses and you get an ad for dresses. Like it's another thing if I fucking buy uh, a coffee cake in the Rite Aid and then eat it. And then the next day I get an ad about like how to stop binge eating. I'm like, <laughs> how the fuck did you know this? This is so creepy. Get out um, of my life. Uh, yeah, so it's... It's really when you think to when you start kind of going down that rabbit hole, it is really scary to think about how much they know about us. <laughs> yeah. So did you this is probably our last episode that will come out before, before the election. Election. Yeah. Oh, so we there was a small chance that we may know uh the winner of the election by the next time we record probably not probably I mean, not probably not it'll have to be it would have to be a landslide in order to know that and you know obviously like the plan is to just fucking invalidate all of these mail-in ballots uh which brett, brett kavanaugh has already done <laughs> yeah um, um i mean well obviously donald trump has done for he's been doing that for a while now but like as of last night brett kavanaugh came out and said that he questions the validity of mail-in ballots um so that's good we can already see where that's going um yeah i mean if biden wins by like you know seven points or something especially if he wins florida because they're counting their mail-in ballots now like it is it is possible that Trump will lose so badly that we know the the that it's a Biden victory on election night. I just I'm not holding my horses for it. I am bracing for a, a month of not knowing. You I, know? I kind of think that that's where I just I don't see us knowing on election. I don't even see us knowing the next day. I I just think that it's going to be there. They're gearing up for a fight already, the, the Trump administration, and they are already kind of pulling out all the stops to kind of um, erode public confidence in the electoral system, which, I mean, you shouldn't have confidence in the electoral system anyways, but not because of mail-in ballots. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, so um, early voting is out and about in, uh, it's, 
it's a go in almost in most states, I think now. This was the first time that New York had early voting available for a federal election for a um for a presidential election. And so this is kind of yeah, this is the the first time uh it's happened and it was I I was there on the first day of voting and um in that day alone 422,000 people in New York um voted on the first day which is huge but also the lines were crazy long um I had like this weird fast pass thing that I got in the mail that I just happened to bring that allowed me to get into a shorter line what was, I I don't know why and the board of elections sent it to me and they were I was in my first line for like 45 minutes and then somebody from one of the poll workers was coming around saying if you have this if you have a fast pass you can move to a line on the other side of the building so i was like oh i do have that um and it just basically is this like little tag that the board of elections mails you that has a barcode on it that allows you to like them to check you in like immediately why Um, do they do that what why do they have a fast pass? I don't know. I, I just got it in the mail. I don't I don't ask questions. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know. It's like just Universal Studios rules, I guess. Um Yeah. Yeah. I I haven't voted yet because my if I wait till election day, my polling place is on my block and uh, so it's uh you know, it's right there. I, I don't have to go anywhere, so I'm just going to walk downstairs and vote i you know i mean i'm i'm not super stoked to to vote for joe biden i am gonna vote for him on the working families party line which like you know people are there is some rightful skepticism about whether the working families party was uh is you know really like super helpful to the left but you know, I mean, there was that whole uh, fiasco with them kind of hiding their membership vote when it came to the presidential endorsement. Very likely that their membership voted for Bernie Sanders and uh, the leadership wanted Elizabeth Warren. And, you know, uh, it right. isn't. Yeah, but, you know, at the same time, like if if they weren't doing anything, then Cuomo wouldn't be trying so hard to kick them off the ballot. And they were very useful in the campaigns of, you know, Julia Salazar, Tiffany Caban. Um, it's not like this and the, working, isn't, the Working Families Party has been around for a long time. I, I agree with you. I don't I think there was a lot of distaste for for what happened with that endorsement process. But pretty much everyone I know who's been like in, you know, organizing in new york for a long time you know the working families party has they they have earned their their bona fides i think but um yeah and isn't he, it called a bona fides isn't it actually bona fides i don't know it, it very well may be well so i don't know i mean it, you know new york is gonna definitely go for biden so it's like i i personally am not giving anyone crap for you know voting for you know, whether it's uh, Biden, Howie Hawkins, you know, like, but if you want to, I mean, I, my plan is like, I am going to uh, vote for Biden on the on the WFP line because 
why not? You know, uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I, I think everyone knows who they're voting for at this point. But, you know, yeah. my, my whole thing is, is like, I just kind of wish that, like, especially in these, like, safe blue states that people would kind of lay off each other uh, on the decision a little bit. Because, I mean, it's like at the end of the day, there's like, there's, there's not really a choice that's going to be ideologically aligned for socialists. And so, you know, I think like using your own vote in a way that makes you feel like you're doing something, whether you are or not. For me, I'm like, if I could possibly help, you know, the WFP stay on the ballot and, you know, maybe apply uh, some pressure in some way to the New York political machine, that's like, that seems like a, an okay thing to do with it, but you know, whatever. Yeah, Julie, Julia Salazar is uh, was the person who I was really excited to to vote for again, and obviously I voted for. I mean, I, I voted for Joe Biden. I I can't in good conscience vote for Howie Hawkins, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, I I just think I I think there is something to be said for like maybe running up the scoreboard, even though obviously New York is a blue state. But like running up the uh, the popular vote total, if if in fact Joe Biden wins, to uh, yeah, I I don't know, I don't know what anything is anymore, and I just I the only thing that I know is that I would rather um, fight against a centrist than a fascist. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, I am I'm not gonna vote shame anyone but at the same time like i mean i am willing to go ahead and admit that i think that's having some kind of basic competence even if it's terrible evil neoliberal competence just having at least a couple people here and there that uh believe in science to some degree or another would be a useful thing to have in the middle of a pandemic and you know what maybe i'm not cool but i know you you know you know what i I think is so funny is how much like trump diehards hate that joe and kamala wear masks all the time like it really gets under their skin that they're constantly wearing masks it's like yeah man (laughs) sorry Yeah, uh, I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll see I, what happens. I'm not feeling. None of none of us are feeling great about it. Yeah, we'll 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 just we'll see what happens. All right. So you well, know, let's get let's get out of this uh, kind of uh, uninspiring subject and let's get into uh, some some sex work conversation. Uh, please enjoy this interview with Caitlin Bailey and um, please consider becoming a a Patreon subscriber. We have a whole back catalog of episodes, including a really great three-part series on QAnon, where we talk to uh, Will Summer, Talia Lavin, who has a new really wonderful book out, and also Travis View. This week, we talked to Rax King, who is an essayist and a food writer, uh, and she's so cool. Um, You know, we've got a great series of stuff. Uh, a conversation about the West Wing with Luke Savage, who is wonderful. 
So please consider becoming a subscriber for $5 a month and uh, enjoy a little bit of extra Reply Guys interviews. And uh, yeah, please enjoy the show this week. Uh, whatever you end up doing voting-wise, stay safe, wear stay a mask, safe. all that stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Just listen to Reply Guys. I've been following Sesta Fosta um, and the impact of it for a, a few years. And um, my understanding is that basically Sesta Fosta put sex workers in a lot of danger because there's no more, um, you know, can't advertise on Craigslist anymore. And uh, it is now like it's kind of driven people into the shadows into more dangerous situations. Can you talk a little bit yes. about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what what Sesta Fosta effectively did was it erased um, a lot of the communities that sex workers had built for themselves to uh, schedule and screen clients and keep each other safe and share information. Um, and so in the name of cracking down on, you know, child sex traffickers, uh, Sesta Fosta created an exception to Article 230 uh, which opened up liability for third parties to be responsible for what their users post on them, which incentivized uh, places to erase sex workers, right, who were engaging in illegal activity. So this resulted in the shutdown and seizure of Backpage. This is Craigslist erotic services, uh, Rent Boy collapses. And so it's very disruptive for sex workers and and puts all of us in sort of an immediate uh, financial and emotional turmoil, right? Because it's, it's, you know, we have to wait for like the next ecosystem to appear. And more alarmingly, pushes sex work into the harms of of predators because they're more vulnerable to exploitation now that those safety mechanisms have gone away and you've created a feeling of desperation. And this is exactly what, uh, you know, sort of end-demand type laws uh, or these laws that target third parties or platforms um, or even clients end up having. That's the impact that they have on the community. Yes. And, you know, for listeners who uh, may be familiar with the show, um, we also talked about Sesta Fosta at length with Rara Imler back, I think, in May. So feel free to check out that episode as well if you'd like to learn more about that. But I, I'd like to to dive into some other things with you that we have never talked about on the show, um, specifically the history of sex work. Um, and I was, you know, obviously like what's all of history is a way too big a question, but I guess just like, what are a few things that you've learned that have surprised you personally? Yeah. I mean it, you know, they, they call it the oldest profession and it sex work predates money. Um, it's, older it's older than we are as a species uh i think one of the things that surprised me about sex work is that it really is ubiquitous uh everywhere everywhere you look for the exchange of of sex for something of value you find it um one of my favorite uh you know it, it's and i i think that we can also track the denigration of sex workers to the like f the rise of misogyny and the like the Abrahamic religions and Rome and as we sort of replace fertility goddesses with these 
uh, these war gods. And then, of course, that eventually shapeshifts into the Judeo-Christian re- religions. That horphobia is, uh, is, is very linked to misogyny and that it is the sort of the beginnings of a lot of that. Because I think I, whores and sex workers represent an existential threat to patriarchal control because you cannot have a patriarchy if you don't know who the dads are. And so I, it's been fascinating to sort of track periods of history um, through the stories and the lens of sex workers within those communities because you see a lot of different survival techniques and you see a lot of different people sort of like shape-shifting into spaces. Um, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that that's a really good point about, you know, sex work, phobia of sex work uh, kind of being you know, related to a more general misogyny. And I guess, you know, just Mm -hmm. to kind of shift into a a more sort of specific niche of that, there's been a lot of discussions on the left recently about how sex work fits into leftism or communism. And on the one hand, I think probably Mm -hmm. the most, I mean, the most commonly expressed viewpoint that I see among leftists is like sex work is work sex work uh, deserves yeah. all all of the uh you know all of the protections that any other worker should have and you know maybe more because it's more potentially more potential for danger i guess but you know i have right. seen some of these wild ass takes like uh <laughs> under communism there would be no uh, no uh no yeah. sex work just sex mutual aid um so I just want yeah, that, but uh, first of all, bananas. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like the the phrase "sex work is work" makes me makes me nervous as an organizer, actually, um, because sex work is work, but it is also sex, and I feel like we get to a better place um, in our advocacy in the laws that we try to create if we go at this from the foundational structure or the like the foundational beliefs or, or the umbrella of LGBTQ rights and about not criminally preventing consensual adults for from engaging in consensual sexual acts with each other that like that is the foundational wrong thing that we're not going to do and thinking about sex work as a workplace later because sex work is like so many things to so many different people and so like organizing and uh unions and like really strict osha enforced workplace rules make sense when you're talking about a strip club but they don't really make sense when you're talking about an independent provider and in the horophobic culture that we live in after like 6,000 years of misogyny, I feel like it is naive to come at this from a place of workplace regulations and not end up in a place that ends up really uh, disempowering workers. And I think Nevada is the best example of that, right? Nevada, it's the only state in the union with legal regulated prostitution and it, first of all, it has the highest arrest rate per capita for prostitution in the country by a huge margin. And also it concentrates all of the power in kind of like a, an enforced monopoly of brothel owners, which I think is the opposite of what leftists want to do. I, I mean, one thing that we've all been thinking about a lot this summer, hopefully, is uh, policing and why it's really important to defund the police abolish the police, I guess, 
what are some of like from the perspective of sex work what are some mm-hmm. of the ways that policing is really harmful and if if you're on the side of like defund abolish like why is reform a bad approach yeah sure yeah yeah so um yeah absolutely and i feel like the the history of policing prostitution in this country is also um the history of sort of the construction of uh the the racist um policing that that like the the jim crow policing and the the the, the institution that we built to replace slavery Right. And I think that the the prostitution laws and the ways that they were utilized really demonstrates this because we didn't actually criminalize prostitution in this country until 1910. And we did it with, uh, you know, an act called the Mann Act or the White Slave Law, because in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, there was this public panic. We had a sex panic. Right. Similar to what QAnon is today and the satanic panic in the 1980s. But in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, it was black men, immigrant men are kidnapping white women and selling them into sex slavery. And so we have to pass all of these laws to prevent that from happening. And so the white slave law of 1910, uh, which was the first federal anti-prostitution law targeting citizens, all of the ones before that were um, first and foremost anti immigrant laws um made it a crime to transport a woman across state lines for immoral purposes and this was sold to the american public as like an anti-trafficking law and it was enforced as an anti uh mixed race relationship law and so a lot of consensual couples that were uh, hanging out together or like chorus girls that were performing or doing their job or people engaging in extramarital affairs were brought in on charges of the Man Act. But this myth of like white slavery has persisted and is exploited by the contemporary anti-trafficking movement to try to conflate adult consensual prostitution with, you know, the kidnapping uh of the the most vulnerable which in you know public imagination has been is a role that has been played by privileged white women for a hundred years um and so i think understanding that history and and fast forward a few years uh the brothels are closed in the sort of immediate aftermath of this uh again to crack down on on white slavery this pushes sex workers further underground the first Sex worker-led protest um, happens around this time in 1917 in San Francisco um, to protest the imminent closure of the brothels. They asked the local moral reformer, where do you expect us to go? Uh, and in and the American involvement in World War I, which also happened in 1917, really increased the active policing of street-based prostitution. So in, in at, immediately after closing the brothels, you see a rise um, in street solicitation. Um, and this is sold as like the, the reason that STIs are spreading. So um, medical schools at the time are teaching that only women um, are contagious, that like dicks are clean mostly. And so they don't test. And we all know the, they're not the soldiers yeah. or like pass out <laughs> prophylactics or like, do anything they just criminalize they really aggressively criminalize prostitution around military bases and this is something called the american plan and it's a piece of american history that is like 
very well documented and it, it goes on, you know, no one denies it, but we also don't talk about it a lot, which is this multi-decade period where local law enforcement was empowered to pick up just like any loose or suspicious or promiscuous looking woman that was making the wrong kind of eye contact with him that was alone and then force her uh, into a venereal test. And if she was deemed contagious, then she was sent to a lock hospital. Uh, and that that's a real period of American history that wasn't that long ago. Damn. And so I think it's important for us to think about the role that police play in our communities because they weren't, they were never designed to protect and serve our communities. They were designed to replace the institution of slavery. And so, yes, I am, I am a pro abolish person. I think that, uh, reform is not, you can't, you can't make this group good. I'm kind of thinking about, you know, this this was a few weeks ago now actually probably many weeks ago time is like passing quickly but i'm thinking about uh the recent controversy with only fans and i forgot which actress was the one that like oh yeah bella thorne yeah, yeah yeah i don't know i don't know who any celebrities are that's like my way of being a nerd <laughs> Sure. But, you know, I was thinking kind of more broadly. We're just old now. Yeah, yeah. Just more broadly, like, about the impact of the pandemic on sex work. And sex work seems like one of the the hardest types of work to, uh, depending on the type of sex work, to, like, you know, maintain social distancing. Um, Except, you know, (laughs) probably, like, camera stuff. But, I mean, how are sex workers that you know dealing with, the pandemic um how are people keeping themselves safe what is the best way for uh people who want to support sex workers during this time yeah i mean i think that the sex work community is a really good example of of mutual aid you know the sex work community sort of knows that it's being left behind like you know, sex worker businesses were explicitly excluded from the PPP loans. You know, a lot of people who are are working in underground economies, you know, I feel like as gig, gig employees, we kind of get this, but like criminalized gigs, like doubly so. Um, so sex workers really banded together uh, during the pandemic. I really recommend organizations like Swap Behind Bars and Lissa Strada and Red Canary that have been providing some emergency services and survival techniques like within the community um, if you're looking to support. I will say that like sex workers are also survivors and it's, you know, we are all kinds of people who are doing all kinds of things. There's been a huge shift to online work, uh, which has done a couple of things. It's flooded the market. And also there are a lot of people that are vulnerable to exploitation because they haven't learned, you know, street-based or or in-person providers have not been protecting themselves from cyber predators for the past few years, right? They've been learning how to protect themselves from people in person. And, you know, vice versa is like people that do online work become adept at, you know, protecting themselves from their content being stolen or, you know, being doxxed. Uh, and they, you know, it's it's a learning curve to learn how to protect. It, like, it's just different kinds of work, right? Um, that's not immediately translatable. And so we've seen a, a real rise Um you know, it's unfortunate that the pandemic is happening in the wake of SESTA-FOSTA that I think really exasperates a lot of these 
other forces that make it harder for sex workers to share information with each other about how to keep each other safe um, and how to connect. And what happened with OnlyFans, I think, is the is a symptom of sex workers who really have been at the forefront of of so much of the Internet um, and creating these spaces and, and experimenting with the technology to create these spaces um, are being viewed as like toxic assets by platforms that are increasingly trying to limit their liability instead of create a diverse and dynamic space for people to exchange, you know, ideas and and connect with each other. And so places are learning how to limit what sex workers can do. And so what for for folks that don't know what happened is uh, there's a, a well-known actress, Bella Thorne, who, you know, was trying to be a supporter of sex workers, but like she's young and dumb and and sort of tone deaf. And so she signed up for OnlyFans, made like a million dollars in her first month. And then she scammed her uh, donors or patrons or clients by saying that she would send a nude photo for money, but she got the money and she sent like a partially clothed photo or whatever and so that's a violation of OnlyFans terms and so there was this unprecedented amount of like people asking for their money back and uh because Bella Thorne was like did not know how to act in a sex worker space uh and so OnlyFans announced a series of very prohibitive uh limitations like maximizing the number that somebody can be tipped uh you know only paying out monthly instead of weekly and these had real world detrimental impacts on people that were living on the edge that were just learning how to build a support system for themselves on OnlyFans uh so there's been just a lot of different kinds of disruption if that makes sense and I know that's true for a lot of industries right now but I feel like you know, sex workers are, are gig workers. Yeah, I kind of on that same note, uh, like Bella Thorne, I am sure that there are many people who would like to be supportive of sex workers and are going about it the wrong way. So I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, some of the biggest misconceptions, well-intentioned people have about how to be supportive of sex work yeah and I think that's a that's a great question and I think the the best way to be helpful for any community is to listen you know our um you know our big ask of legislators and allies and supporters is listen to sex workers and stop the arrests uh but stopping the arrests is the most urgent priority uh and so you know we're I I think that the biggest misconception is that um, all sex workers are experiencing like their personal bottom and are reaching to sex work to get out of a bad situation. Um, I think that another big misconception um, is that every sex worker wants to leave sex work or that anything would be better than engaging in sex work. And I think that there's a lot of stigma and shame and pile on that goes to sort of forcing your own narrative onto a survivor that might be trying to process 
something complex. And I feel like imposing simple stories um, on someone's life is never is never helpful. And neither are handcuffs. Handcuffs never help. I mean, there's a pretty easy joke to make sex work handcuffs. But yes, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, yeah, that's actually that there's a hilarious sort of like I don't, a well-known story from Stonewall and that uh, there were two folks who were handcuffed together. Um, that were in the van and then when the uh, you know when the resistance started and the police were overwhelmed everyone that had been detained like got out of the van and the folks that were handcuffed together uh, found somebody in the BDSM community uh, to unlock them which I thought was uh, appropriate and hilarious. Oh my god what a great story (laughs) yeah that's so yeah well Kaylin where can people find you and listen to your podcast? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, The Oldest Profession podcast uh, is available wherever you listen to podcasts. We just launched season three. We're very excited. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Old Pro Podcast. Uh, And you can find me also all over the internet at Caitlin Bailey, spelled weird, K-A-Y-T-L-I-N, Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y. Awesome. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. It was great talking with you. And please check out Caitlin's podcast. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at O Julia Tweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is mine.